It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That crazy starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a machine, listen to yourself, the world with its own needs. I mean, in your own head, beat it up and I've got no sleep. The whole anarchist is clattered with a fear fight down. Like, why are we in a fire? This is the southern gang, the government for hiring the combat site. But you wasn't coming in a hurry, leave the jury to get down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. End of the world as we know it. This is the Hour of Doom. And Bloom! Hey, friends and neighbors, welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour, a portentous paragon of perseverance in a perilous world. I'm Joe Alton ND, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find close to 800 post videos and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. I'm an old man, but I'm on a brand new mission, and that is to put a medically prepared person in every family for any disaster. Absolutely, and I'm Amy Alton. I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. And the hostess with the most as sweet as molasses and just as bad for your teeth, I'll bet. (laughs) Together, we are the watchers on the wall. We watch it all for you to help you keep it together, even if everything else falls apart. Friends and neighbors, have you been injured in an accident? With a lackadaisical longhorn, well, our attorney says, don't call me, call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy, and listen to this. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider-patient relationship exists or is implied between the hosts and listeners. Dr. Bones and Nursing, we strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Well, I'm insulted. That we're just entertainment only. We're not entertainment only. We are education and entertainment, otherwise known as edutainment. Aha, brand new word for you. Hey, what's a gist survivalist? We learn as much from you as you do from us. So connect with us. It's easy. And here's the beautiful nurse Amy to tell you how. Absolutely. Don't forget, you can email us anytime at drbonespodcast at aol.com. Find us on our Facebook group at Survival Medicine, Dr. Bones, and Nurse Amy. We have a Facebook page, Doom and Bloom. You can also follow us on Twitter at Prepper Show. And don't forget our YouTube channel. At DR Bones Nurse Amy. And our video cast the first and third Wednesdays of every month at AroundTheCabin.com at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And thanks to all the great networks that carry our show. Uh, Prepper Broadcasting Network, G Man's great station. Uh, 
the USA Emergency Broadcast Network, uh, Survival Central Radio, and Shake and Wake Radio. Uh, I think that these guys have awesome shows, and I hope that you will check out their hosts and their shows soon. They are the bomb. Hey, I wanted to just talk a little bit about the Zika virus and the Pope. Well, how about that? How would you connect the Zika virus and the Pope? Well, I, I'm until He's in Mexico. Until recently, I didn't connect the Zika virus and Donald. Uh, uh, I mean, uh, Donald Trump and the Pope, but uh, I managed to make that connection in the news just recently. But right now, I am connecting the Pope and Zika virus. The Pope is the head of the Catholic Church, and the Catholic Church is the predominant religion in. Most of South America, as you might well know. And as you well know as a result, that in many of these countries, abortion is a no-no. It is actually against the law and absolutely illegal. Now, the it's hard to imagine the Pope would consider changing their stance on uh, changing his stance on abortion, but actually has changed his stance somewhat on contraception and saying that we should understand the situation with the Zika epidemic and that it may be reasonable to consider some method of preventing pregnancy while the epidemic is causing all these children with birth defects and microcephaly and all these other issues, Guillain-Barre, that seem to be coming from it. So this is something that is, I think, almost unheard of. This Pope is certainly a revolutionary at least uh, as far as popes go but he hasn't changed everything just because he is lightening the restrictions on contraception due to this epidemic that's going on with the zika virus doesn't mean that the catholic church has changed its mind about abortion as a matter of fact he says quote abortion's not a lesser evil it's a crime and absolute evil don't avoid uh, don't confuse avoiding pregnancy with abortion. Absolutely. This is strictly a temporary allowance to try and prevent these poor babies from becoming infected with the microcephaly disease and the less pregnancy rates that they have in these countries before they develop a vaccine, the less likely they're going to have to deal with this forever. You're absolutely right, and if even places like El Salvador, which is in Central America, is so concerned that it's recommended that women not get pregnant in the entire country for right. for two years, two, two years. full years. <laughs> it's insane. Now you may hear a lot of rattling around <laughs> this <laughs> this episode of the Survival We're Medicine in a Hour. Room. We're in a I just hotel room. The phone off of the desk. Yeah. Yes, we're we're in a hotel room in. Temple, Texas, yes, as a matter of fact, a little right south of Dallas, south of uh, Waco, as a matter of fact, and north of Austin, Texas. And actually, it's directly south of right. um, Fort Worth. That's right. We and went over to Fort Worth and then dropped straight down. Right, exactly, exactly. And we are here for the Mother Earth News, which is Looks awesome. Like if you ever, event. if you want to learn some homesteading skills, the Mother Earth 
News Fair is the place for you, and they're having it in a bunch of different places. We'll be at a number of pla- a number of these this year. We'll be, I think, in Oregon, Albany, Oregon. Uh, we'll be That's the in the first weekend in June. That's uh, Ju- I believe it's June fifth and sixth. We'll, and we're also going to be in Asheville. Yep, we'll be in Asheville. I think that's the ninth and tenth of April. The ninth and tenth of April, and so we'll be all over that's the country. Their second one there, and in they have just. All, I mean, if we can just get away. For once, just so we can listen to some of these oh, lectures, I mean, taking care of chickens and and all of the, uh, amazing gardening, gardening, homesteading, right, all sorts of natural crazy. remedies, building this, fixing that, making this. It's just amazing. A, a lot of um, home remedies and a lot of creating items for your house, like soap making and candle making. Um, really interesting for us is the beekeeping. Oh, yeah. There's always some real experts that come out right. and talk about beekeeping. Our good friends at Homestead Survival have uh, one of their beekeepers from Montana coming down. He's going to be talking at this fair as well. Also, we're going to be in a, a little show called Waco Guns and Gals. We're going to have some of our supplies there. there, and I'll be hanging out there for the day on if you, Saturday. If you guys live near Waco, and you can go to... What was the place called? What's the place called that you're going to? The actual hall. Keller? Oh, Tucker Hall. Tucker. I was thinking Keller. Yeah. Tucker, Tucker Hall over on Highway 6. Yep. Come out and tell old poor lonely Dr. Bones hello. Yes, because the lovely nurse Amy's going <laughs> to be at the Mother Earth News having, He's gonna be all having, by some real, having some real fun. All right. Okay. Well, you know what? You've heard it before. You'll hear it again. Despite repeated recommendations for from doctors for adults to sleep at least seven hours each night, a new study shows that more than one-third of us are just not getting enough sleep. And they pinpointed which states are actually the worst sleep-deprived. Uh-oh. The CDC study. Can I guess? Well, hold on. You can guess. Which? Who, who do you believe? Let's say uh, who's the most sleep-deprived. Right. I'm going to say Alaska. I'm just thinking about how long the the sun shines for part of their year. Yeah, you would think that that would be pretty crazy. That's but my That was my guess. Remember when we went uh-huh. on that cruise? Right. The land of the... only cruise, we went to Alaska. Right. Land of the midnight sun. And it was they call it. basically some sort of light. 24 hours a day. Mm. It never really got dark. Right. Now that, of course, you can't say about Hawaii. Hawaii is, it's interesting that Hawaii is the state with the worst sleep deprivation Ah. that's found. I was completely wrong. Right. That's found in all 50 states, which is pretty amazing. But it, it's not just Alaska and Hawaii. It's it's definitely Hawaii. It's not Alaska. Uh But it is pretty much all the way up and down the Appalachian mountain chain. Interesting. So you see a lot of people in the, uh, for, and I don't know why this is. Yeah, but the question is, what's the cause? Exactly. Why? Yeah, it's a, it's a kooky thing. They found uh, huh. that all along the Appalachian chain mm-hmm. that they're finding that there are people that, or the average amount of sleep that's gotten is less than average do you think it's their work day i don't know maybe maybe the companies around there have longer work days than other areas and they just kind of all adapted that work schedule that they start earlier and they end later 
No, that's maybe I get, they work more. Hours. That's possible. I haven't checked. The, I haven't really researched into it, and it certainly would be good to know because research has shown that lack of sleep is associated with a greater risk of, gosh, a million lack things: of sleep. heart disease, diabetes, oh. uh, obesity, all sorts of chronic conditions, and even mental illness. Oh boy, the, the I'm sure it's, right depresses immunity. Right. The so sen- you get sicker yes. easily. Easily. Yeah, the Centers for Disease Control and Protection call inadequate sleep, indeed, a public health program and say that, hey, if you're between 18 and 60 years old, you got to be sleeping at least seven hours a night. And so that is something that's very important. But people just aren't putting sleep on top of their priority list. I know we don't. No, I want to go to sleep right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're laughing. I'm actually telling the truth, but I'm going to do the show because it's so important. But Absolutely. We only had probably three and a half hours of sleep. We asleep, last yep. Night. Yep. We, t- we t- caught the red eye out to Texas. Up at 4 30 in right. the morning. Yeah. And it has been, well, I mean, it's been a wonderful trip so far oh, but beautiful and the people are just so nice but there. especially the first night you know after not getting sleep the night before we've been up an awful long time i'm sure that you guys have heard some little slurred so speech see. on our I've part dropped, i've dropped a phone um you had a little chair incident yes. i've dropped a book <laughs> I've dropped my glasses. I've dropped the newspaper that we were reading before. I almost dropped the iPad. <laughs> well, you know that's a and this the problem is that you know you we should clumsy. We have to practice what we preach because we tell people that they should get sleep, but we really don't do it. Well, I mean, people know and we know that we need to, of course, get exercise and eat right and. Uh, get second. enough we sleep. Do get, we do get exercise. We've been walking. I've been. I'll call it walk jogging. I jog as fast as I can for as long as I can, and then I walk really, really fast till I catch my breath, and then I jog again. Right. And I've done that at least once or twice a day for several weeks, and then you will walk with me at night, or you'll ride your bike while I'm doing my walk jog. So we have gotten the exercise. Our issue is definitely sleep. Um, We couldn't go to sleep early last night because we had some things to do f- to, to prepare pack. for the yeah, show. Yeah, we had to pack and get all our act together. Yeah, get our to act make together. some more laminates for the tables and just... Um, all sorts of stuff. All kinds of paperwork. Right. But we wanted to go to sleep earlier. We had the desire. <laughs> we just couldn't. Well, this study, which identified Hawaii as the most sleep-deprived... I, and, I can't and believe the, Hawaii. In the southeast and Appalachian mm. Mountain region as, uh, as another trouble area mm-hmm. is actually the first study to look at sleep levels from a state by state in in a state by state comparison Mm -hmm. and so we told you who actually gets the least sleep who gets the most sleep wait wait who do you think okay well let me try to guess that now the most sleep. now see i would say uh washington state and the reason i would say that is because they get a lot of rain and i know at least for you and i that the sound of rain is very relaxing and very peaceful, and it makes you want to take a nap. Well, that's very logical. I think it's very logical. It's very peaceful. Uh-huh. It's, you know, and a lot of those sleep machines will play the sound of rain, rain sure, as something to help you go to sleep. 
So that's my guess. All right. Well, it wasn't right, but you know what? You got an A for logical thinking. <laughs> I thought that was terrific. But this, the states that get the most sleep uh-huh. uh, are South Dakota, Colorado, and Minnesota. And so... Colorado like, might have something to do with the legalization of marijuana now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think that... That would be, they I think... They may be really mellow. Oh, yes. Again, they, I probably get a lot of sleep because it's hard to say. I don't know what to say about South Dakota and Minnesota. Otherwise, other than they... I think they're on either side of Wisconsin. Maybe they just consider folks from Wisconsin sort of boring. No. <laughs> I'm, no. I am not saying that, actually. There's some very exciting people from Wisconsin. and they're... Carbohydrates go up, oh, and they go to sleep. I don't right. know. They're very, eating, they're eating the cheese. Very interesting. <laughs> so we want to talk a little bit about um, sleep deprivation. I really want to go oh, into bad. that for a little bit. You know, it, it, we are professionals, medical professionals, and we originally were in the field of obstetrics, and we can verify that delivering babies at mm. four a.m. is not conducive to a good sleep pattern. No. And so. Lack of sleep or sleep deprivation, I mean, can be a major condition. It could be acute based on uh, a situation that doesn't allow you to sleep. Like we're in right that now. That is occurring right now. Right. Or it could be a chronic issue as well, which also might be an issue with us. Um, but if you think about survival scenarios, you can imagine the so many, so many reasons why you, you might have to keep suffer. One eye open. Right, you might not. You're just not going to get sleep because you're going to have unfamiliar surroundings. You're going to have increased responsibilities. Noises you're gonna you've be, never heard. That's right. That's unsafe right. Unsafe barriers right. between yourself and the environment. Right. Or I mean, your or hostile neighbors. Or high, or even hostile. But you know, if you are used to having a home with walls and a door and windows that you can lock. And then you're in a tent right? or some sort of man-made outdoor shelter. You're not going to feel quite as safe because that barrier is just not there. Things can get to you much easier. Right. It gets to your mind, absolutely. Yeah, but the truth of the matter is if you don't get enough sleep, it really impairs your ability to contribute to uh, your family or your, or your group in any kind of survival scenario, any austere setting. Uh, it stands to reason that uh, car crashes, industrial accidents, I mean, in, in all the things that can happen in normal times that are big issues uh, can be caused by lack of sleep. As a matter of fact, one study showed that over 100,000 serious traffic accidents a year occur in the United States because somebody fell asleep at the wheel. And the British also actually... I'm glad they I'm not do, driving right now. Yeah, I'll tell you, the Brits <laughs> do a lot of research in this type of thing, and they found that 17 hours, 21 hours without sleep is the equivalent of a blood alcohol level of 0.08%, which is the legal, I think, lim- uh, legal definition of uh, intoxication, isn't it? Uh, That's here, right. 0.08? I, I'm not sure. I think, I'm pretty sure it's 0.08. No, it's lower. I think it's lower than that. Hmm. Well, the bottom Thankfully, line. Hopefully, we haven't run into a situation where we need to blow into, oh, blow into one of those. A breathalyzer yeah. and then call a lawyer. Yes. So, par- pardon us for not knowing the exact number. We're teetotaling. I'll look it up. Teetotalers. I'll look it up. So, very sad. Well, when you don't get enough sleep, healing is delayed. The increased amount of muscle activity from lack of rest, that's equivalent to physical overexertion. So you're doing all sorts of stuff, equivalent to intoxication, equivalent to overexerting yourself. There was a 2004 study that evaluated the performance of medical residents uh, 
Those that got less than four hours of sleep a night made twice the medical errors than residents who slept seven to eight hours a night. So pretty amazing. Well, you were right. And of course, the legal (laughs) the legal limit was um, zero point zero eight percent. Zero point. 0.8%. 0.8%. Right. Yes, so 0.08%. Exactly. Now, I think that the most dangerous thing about being chronically sleep-deprived is people get so used to it that they don't realize they're functioning at an impaired level. If you don't realize that you're making bad judgments, well, you're going to make those bad judgments and go all the way through with it and wonder what happened when things don't work out so well. Uh, now, in addition to what happens in your brain by failing to get seven, eight hours of sleep, you get a bunch of other symptoms. You become irritable. You're depressed. Sometimes your hands shake. You may have bloodshot or puffy eyes. You might have headaches, confusion, memory loss, muscle aches. Wow, crazy, crazy stuff. Your diabetes may uh, go out of control. Your blood pressure may go higher. You may black out and have uh, what they call micro-sleeps in which you just sort of stare out into space. Yeah, I mean, I'll bet there are a lot of people that have done that. If, uh, especially with a boring class during school. Uh, and in the worst cases, you might even have hallucinations if you've lost enough sleep. It's pretty incredible. The lack of deep sleep impairs your mood, decreases your ability to learn. Um, deep sleep is also necessary to allow your natural enzymes in your body to repair damage caused by free radicals. When the Free radicals are... Uh, molecules, molecules that are responsible for tissue damage, for aging, even aging. And that same study found that lack of a dreaming or rapid eye movement sleep actually worsens depression in people that are prone to it. Depressed patients have depleted amounts of certain chemicals in their brain called neurotransmitters, and sleep deprivation actually depletes them even worse. Now, the treatment of the sleep deprivation depends on the cause. The best start is to consider a concept that let's call sleep hygiene. Sleep hygiene is adjusting your behavior to maximize the amount of restful sleep that you get. This is what I think you should consider. I think you should adhere to a standard bedtime and a standard wake-up time. Try to make it a routine as much as is possible. And make your environment as comfortable as possible. That's also important. So, you know, whatever you can do to increase your security, feeling that you're um, safe, that is important. If, if it's just as simple as having the blanket you had when you were a little kid with you, then that if that's what does it, that's what does it. Uh, you should avoid nicotine. You should avoid caffeine. You should avoid alcohol before going to bed. You should exercise regularly, but I don't want you to exercise before going to bed because that will keep you awake. Eliminating as much light as possible from your environment when you go to sleep also is conducive to a deeper sleep, and it's something you should do. And you should do everything you can to stay away from food, heavy foods especially, for at least two to three hours before going to sleep. That, I think, is important, not just for that, for sleeping, but also for issues like heartburn and acid reflux. Uh, otherwise known as gastroesophageal reflux disease, or GERD, G-E-R-D. 
So that's important. And of course, we want you to keep your mind clear of all stressful issues at bedtime. Just try to blank out. And if you do, you'll go to sleep a lot faster. Now, some of the stuff that I just recommended to you might be difficult during a major disaster. So it's best to work on improving your, well, we'll call it, call it sleep hygiene beforehand. Okay, so do as much of you can, as you can now to give yourself a good amount of sleep so you are doing okay and, and just getting what you need. Now, of course, there are a lot of prescriptions, over-the-counter sleep aids that might help. The prescription sleep aids, you probably have heard of them, uh, Halcyon, Ativan, Restoril, Ambien, um, Sonata. Is another, I mean, there are just a, just a lot of them. And now that's all well and good when you actually can get a prescription for these things but what can you do in a situation where you have limited equipment and supplies pretty much whatever you were able to put together before a disaster and indeed a disaster comes that takes away modern medicine from you they're not making this stuff anymore well hopefully you'll have put together a good supply of some over-the-counter medicines like Sominex and uh, benadryl benadryl is diphenhydramine and usually used for allergic reactions as an antihistamine uh, at the 25 milligram dose. However, if you take 50 milligram, <coughs> 50 milligrams of Benadryl, it is effective in inducing sleep in a lot of people. Which it's, is exactly and what's us in Tylenol also. PM. So, yeah. Which is exactly what's in Tylenol PM. Aha. So there you go. Now, you have to be aware that some people may experience sort of a hangover or drowsiness the next day if they do take that but it is something that you can you can use there's another antihistamine with sedative effects that's uh, doxylamine it's also known as unisom and people have heard of that and there are other products like melatonin supplements with melatonin might be <coughs> helpful but they work best in those people who naturally have low levels of a chemical if you have a normal melatonin level but you're just not getting, getting enough sleep taking melatonin may not be particularly helpful I mean, you got to be aware that by the way a lot of these medications if they're taken by children they may have the opposite effect as if they then if they were taken by adults so sometimes if kids are given sedatives they actually instead of becoming sleepy they actually may become agitated in some cases it's sort of weird how that happens but that is indeed the case now a better alternative to start with with regards to uh, sleep aids, you might consider some natural sleep aids, and uh, most of these are in the form of teas for sleeplessness. Uh, chamomile tea is very good for that. Lavender uh, tea is very good. Va valerian root is very good. Catnip, uh, kava root, these are uh, good, good choices. And of course, you have to think about good nutrition. If you can change your diet in a way that will improve the amount of sleep-inducing or muscle-relaxing substances in your body, these include melatonin, like I mentioned before, uh, but also include magnesium, tryptophan, things like that, well, you might actually have a better chance of getting a good night's sleep. Uh, oatmeal has melatonin, milk has tryptophan, almonds have tryptophan and magnesium, bananas have melatonin and magnesium, even whole wheat bread is supposed to help release tryptophan into the body now 
These are all great. Now, how about if you don't have any of this stuff? Well, at the very least, you might consider things like massage, meditation, yoga. These are options for you. These are called relaxation techniques, and they may help you sleep better. Of course, you might have some sound machines. We, uh, Amy mentioned earlier, machine, sound machines that make uh, the sound of rain mm-hmm. is sometimes helpful to get people sleeping or the, a babbling brook, that kind of thing. Right. And there are some people that actually believe that acupuncture will help cure people that have issues with sleep deprivation. Well, and the bottom line is consider making some lifestyle changes now. That way you'll be rested and then you'll be prepared for whatever the uncertain future sends your way. Okay, well, let's take a very short break. You're listening to the Survival Medicine Hour with Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. We'll be right back. In these days of terrorists, active shooters, and worse, every school, workplace, and homestead should have the equipment to save a life. The first aid bleeding control module is meant to provide the items you need to stop hemorrhage. It's compact, lightweight, and has easy-to-read waterproof instructions. If every teacher's desk, worker station, and car or truck had one, have no doubt, it would save lives. Available at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. Okay, we are back. You're listening to the Survival Medicine Hour with Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy, Joe Alton, MD, and Amy Alton, ARMP. Well, that was a pretty interesting... New, I didn't know you were going to play my, my... New promo ad that you put together there. Tell yes. us about that. Well, um, our bleeding kit is something that I really do feel is going to save lives. And I just wanted to put together an attention-grabbing commercial. And you did. I was very grabbed by that. All right. Well, good. By a commercial. Then it I worked. Thought, I thought that was, that was pretty... People don't... Impressive. Think about first aid issues for the most part. I know everyone who's listening here today has probably thought about it, but so many haven't. And we're just trying to get the word out. And sometimes you just have to bring attention to them like, hey, hello, something bad could happen. (laughs) It really is true. All right. Well, we'll definitely talk about that on a show in the very near future. What do you think? Sounds wonderful. Now, I just wanted to relay to people in the audience an interesting email that I got. I got an email from someone that was associated with the Army Medical Corps, and he mentioned to me that the Army is offering a path to citizenship for foreign medical professionals that are willing to come to the United States and to treat our military personnel for a period, probably, I think, of four years is probably what they would recommend or that what they would require. Mm-hmm. But for these people who have no citizenship, their path to naturalization can be as short as three months. That's incredible. That I, It's incredible, number one, that we're having trouble... From- Finding what well, before uh, before you say, I just want to say that mm-hmm. I think that it's incredible that we're having trouble finding physicians, American physicians coming out of school that are unwilling that that we're having trouble finding willing students and uh, nurses and doctors that are are ready to take care of our military personnel 
These are the people who we count on to keep us safe and to keep the world safe, really. And the the fact that we can't get enough of today's medical students to be willing to help our armed forces personnel is, to me, a shock. And I'm just very saddened by it. I know. That you have to kind of, like, bribe people, please come work for us, and we'll let you become a citizen. And I'll tell you, it's in and of itself, for American citizens going out of, getting out of medical school, when you join the Army, you go in as a captain, and you have, I mean, uh, all the according uh, ranks, uh, all the according perks and privileges of, of being an officer in the army and the same thing with with nurses nurses also uh, go in as officers as well i mean it really is uh, a great profession a really a, a truthfully a, a mission uh, a labor of love to take care of the people in our armed services and i certainly and their families and i certainly hope that in the future that we won't have so much trouble getting people American citizens that graduate from medical school from joining our armed services, armed services and helping out mm-hmm. our personnel. Now, that was one issue. Now, the other issue is probably what you were thinking is how are they vetting these foreign medical graduates? Well, if you put them on a path that within three months they get citizenship and then you look at the vetting that's happening <clears throat> with the folks in Syria, and that um, even the ones who you mean have have got next to nothing. Well, no, actually, they have been put through the ones. I'm talking about the ones that have been here already. Okay, the ones that ha- that are here already were put through um, nearly two years. Hmm. And you know, sometimes they don't find enough information. <clears throat> I'm not saying it's the best process. Their their records aren't available. Uh, people could lie, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm, I'm just as a comparison of Syrian refugees versus anyone mm-hmm. from around the world that wants to become an American citizen who happens to be a doctor. Three months. Three months doesn't sound. Like, to me, like, you can get enough references, you can do enough background checks, um, interviews. So, uh, I think it's a big issue. It's, three months seems a little scary. It's certainly... A little short in the time that it should take to vet someone, especially someone who's going to actually be caring for and providing first aid for our most critical citizens, which are the ones that are protecting our freedoms. Those in the military. Those guys and gals are the ones that should have the number one priority for the best, the highest, the greatest medical care. Exactly. And And so what are we bringing in? Are they good? Do we... Do we even know what they look like? Has anyone talked to them? It just seems like a really fast process. Well, it's strange to me because I don't really know the person that sent this, but it says here, Dear Dr. Alden, 
I wanted to share information with you regarding the MAVNI program. This program allows select healthcare professionals the opportunity to earn their citizenship in ex- for exchange for service in the U.S. Army as a provider. This is a great opportunity for many individuals currently working or attending school on a visa. We're looking to get the word out on this program to the entire medical community. And MAVNI means medical accessions vital to the national interest. In other words, what are they basically giving up in the effort to actually get somebody to be able to, to be willing to take care right. of our people. Military accessions vital to the national interest. Uh, a U.S. It's called it's a U.S. Army program. It offers expedited U.S. citizenship. Uh, they can choose to serve full time on active duty or part time mm-hmm. in the reserve. You don't even have to join the service. I mean the active military. Wow. Uh, applicants who are selected by the MAVNI program, they bypass the lengthy green card process, become U.S. citizens in about three months. Pretty amazing. Why is the Army offering this program? Uh, I am actually told the reason why. They, they're asking, they're asking why, and they're, or we're asking why. They, they're answering the Army Medical Department is always looking for the most highly qualified physicians to care for its soldiers and their families, international medical graduates are often at the top of their class from their universities and medical school. They come to the U.S. to further their education, to continue in a residency or fellowship, or to better themselves. And so what this is apparently a way for uh, international medical graduates to become eligible to become Army physicians. So they're making them eligible to become Army physicians, and as a reward, giving them citizenship. So I think this is uh, very interesting. It's quite a long, long letter, actually. But the the truth of the matter is, is that there is a concern about the number of graduate medical graduates that are available to care for our military personnel, that I'm uncertain as to how strenuous the vetting process will be for these foreign medical graduates, you would have to guess that they might be a uh, higher class of a person, perhaps, than your average terrorist. But, <laughs> you know, we had a doctor well, that actually committed committed a terrorist act at Fort Hood right. some time ago. And so education doesn't make you so, a right. better person. It doesn't make you a better person and doesn't not, not doesn't exclude you from the ranks of terrorists. Right. So I, I just I I feel for the army's plight here and I just encourage them I support them and encourage them to do the very best that they can to eliminate questions regarding the individuals that wind up becoming part of this program. If we're going to give them one of the great prizes that a person can have, and that is U.S. citizenship, then we are absolutely required to make sure we know why they're here, to make sure they are capable of performing the services to our armed forces that they say they can, and that they will be good citizens afterwards.
So that's what I say. Got to say about that, <laughs> buddy. What do you What do you think about that? I I agree completely. And of course, like I said, we really need top notch medical personnel for our military above I, anyone else. Those VA hospitals should be the cutting edge of research. They're the ones that should have all the newest, latest, greatest of anything that comes out that can help care for them. Absolutely right. Absolutely. They shouldn't be test dummies, and they shouldn't be given secondhand medical treatment. Absolutely not. It's it's abhorrent. I was actually born on an Air Force base. Um, you know, I could have been delivered by somebody who didn't know what they were doing, and they, they could have damaged me. I'm, I don't know. Maybe they did. Maybe. <laughs> I know that's what you were going to say. Well, I beat you to it. Well, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Just kidding. All right. Well, let's talk about another medical issue, actual medical issue. I want to talk about, um, let's talk about burns. Burns. Um, well, you know, there are a lot of uh, man-made and natural disasters that come with the risk of causing burns to, to people that are caught in them. Of course, wildfires, I guess, are number one. But mm-hmm. uh, earthquakes, anything, uh, mudslides, anything that can cause a, a electrical short or a gas explosion, things like that, of course, can incur burn injuries. Terror, terror events could certainly do that if uh, they use explosives, for example. And if we find ourselves off the grid one day, of course, we might have to cook our food over a fire and we may not be too good at doing that and so we may wind up getting burnt as well and so we can assume that burn injuries are going to rise uh pretty much exponentially and remember kids too you kids are so curious about fire they just like draws them like a moth uh to fire and they can easily get burned as well especially if they're they're living with a campfire all the time um so having materials knowledges to tr- knowledge to treat burns that's just going to be I, I think it's just mandatory okay for any group's medical provider mm-hmm. now the severity of a burn injury depends on the percentage of the total body surface that's actually involved as well as the depth of penetration of the burn how deep did it go into the skin or through the skin in the worst cases now assessing the surface percentage that's burned goes by this uh, a sort of a rule of nines in which like an extremity is 9%, uh, the torso is 18%, uh, an arm isn't, you know, something like 9% also. And they determine how a person's going to do based upon that percentage. And uh, I think it's interesting to learn, but I, uh, I think it has little practical benefit in austere settings now by by the way austere when i you'll hear me say that word quite a, quite a bit austere just simply means remote settings in other words situations in which you don't have access to modern technology modern medicine where you may have limited uh equipment and mm-hmm. supplies so most burns you're going to see are going to be due to very simply excessive exposure to what the sun of course in most cases, these are going to be first-degree burns. You can get sunburn even now in the middle of, this is February 2016, you can get it in the middle of winter uh, with a field of snow in front of you. As a matter of fact, the snow reflects the sunlight right onto you and it causes an increased chance that you're going to burn yourself. Now, these are called first-degree burns. 
they're called first degree burns because only the superficial layer of the skin, which is called the epidermis, is injured. Now, if you're going to avoid sunburn, then don't go out in the sun, of course, especially <laughs> not on purpose to get a tan. A tan is not healthy. Do not go out just to take in the drink in the sun's rays, okay? I mean, you know, you could use 10 to 15 minutes in the sun to get get some vitamin D, but that's really about about it. If you don't really have to go out in the sun, especially in in the hot sun, you know, consider avoiding at least peak sun hours, maybe 11 a.m. to 4 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. I think that would probably be pretty reasonable if you could stay inside during that time. I mean, that's not a bad idea. That's why in some South American countries they have siestas during Absolutely. that time period. The it's the hottest time of the day. Right. right, exactly. Now, this may sound funny to you, but I want you to wear long pants, sleeves, hats, and sunglasses. I want you to cover yourself if you're going to be out in the sun because that will decrease your chances of burning. Absolutely. Spend time in the shade whenever you can. <clears throat> now, if you can't avoid extended exposure to sunlight, you need to put on some kind of sun protection. So let's say a sunblock or a uh, sunscreen. These should need to be applied prior to going outside, and you got to reapply them frequently during the day. Even these water-resistant sunscreens and sunblocks need to be reapplied every couple of hours. I, and, and remember that a lot of people put just a little bit on their skin. That's ridiculous. Be generous in your application. You will get more protection from putting a lot of it on. Now, a sunblock and a sunscreen actually aren't the same thing. You might not know that. Sunblocks contain tiny particles that block and reflect the UV light off of your skin. Whereas a sunscreen contains substances actually absorb the UV light into the cream, I guess, and prevent it from penetrating the skin. And so you might find something advertises a sunblock, other things advertises a sunscreen, and now you know what that means. Now, many commercial products, honestly, contain both. So the bottom line is you need to have these things. Some kind of sun protection should be an integral part of your medical storage. Now, sun protection is rated there's a rating system called the spf system sun protection factor that was developed in the early 60s to measure the capacity of a product to protect against ultraviolet radiation the light of the sun it measures the length of exposure that you can be in the sun before you start to burn now ordinarily it takes about 20 minutes without sunscreen for your skin to start turning red now a product that's spf 15 should delay burning by a factor of 15. So we're about maybe five hours or so uh, over not using anything at all. Now, the higher the SPF rating, the more protection, and the longer you can be out in the sun without being burnt by it. Now, the thing is, it doesn't take into account the fact that you will wear off the sunscreen, so you do need to, regardless of how long it's supposed to last, you need to replace it reapply it on a regular basis. Now, besides the sun, you're going to get first-degree injuries from uh, cooking or campfires, and using hand protection will prevent a lot of these burns, as will, of course, carefully supervising kids near campfires and food preparation areas. Now, what does a first-degree burn look like? 
red, warm, and dry. If you've had a sunburn, you know what a first-degree burn looks like. It'll be painful to the touch. Um, and sunburn, of course, large areas of skin are frequently affected, the entire torso, the entire legs in a lot of cases. Now, but the super injury here is superficial. Remember, it only affects the epidermis, the superficial layer of the skin. So major complications are rare, and treatment is focused on relieving discomfort. Now, if you we can be immersed in a, a shower or a cool bath, that'd be great. In survival settings, I don't know if that's going to be possible, but it would give some relief. At the very least, a cool, moist cloth on the burn would give some relief. Uh, anti-inflammatory medicines like ibuprofen might help. Aloe vera, zinc oxide, these are all effective alternatives. So... Expect this discomfort from the sunburn to having, or for the first degree burn, it lasts about 24 hours or so. Uh, avoid tight clothing during that time. Wear cotton fabrics if you can, light fabrics, and you will feel better. Now, second degree burns are different. Secondary degree burns are deeper injuries. They penetrate through the superficial epidermis, partially through the deeper layer of the skin. The deeper layer of the skin is called the dermis, superficial layer epidermis, deep layer dermis. Unlike first degree burns, second degree burns are going to look different. They're going to be moist. They're going to have blisters. They'll have The blisters will probably have reddened bases. So the base of the blisters will be red. Uh, the area will have a tendency to weep this clearish or whitish fluid called exudate. Um, second degree burns will cause swellings. So one of the things that you should do uh, one of the first things you should do is remove rings and bracelets because the skin is going to swell, and the more it swells, the harder it is to be able to remove these items. Now, if you're going to treat second-degree burns, you need to run cool water over the injury for 10 to 15 minutes, but avoid ice. The skin is damaged, Absolutely. and ice putting ice on it will damage it further. Right. You want to apply moist skin dressings such as uh, Spenco. Second skin is pretty good. Mm-hmm. Uh, you want to put a non-stick pad over that. Those are called Telfa pads. are very good uh, for preventing sticking because if you just use gauze, it sticks to the injury, to the burn, and when you pull it off, it's very painful. Mm-hmm. You want to, Speaking of pain, give ibuprofen for pain relief and apply anesthetic ointments uh, benzocaine's a good one it comes in a spray or it comes in an ointment um right and they're called burn sprays and burn gels you're right very easy to find there's Piece also burn uh blankets sterile burn blankets that you can use yes and if it's just the second degree we're talking about you can cut them into a small section and put them on they're very soothing now they're of course a concern that you may have infection because you've gone deeper into the Skin than just a first degree burn. So sometimes they'll use Silvadine uh, cream, which is a uh, silver sulfadiazine. It actually has a little bit of a antibiotic in with silver, which is before antibiotics existed, silver was used as an antibiotic. So these are useful to prevent infection. And this is topical. Right, right. Folks. It's used topical. So if you want to use your silver solution, this is a great time to break that out. If you well, want a to good try reason that to on your it. second degree burn. Right, it's a good reason to use it. But and make a thick coating. That's one thing about the silver ions is that it really does need a really thick layer to work. Absolutely. Now, with regards to blisters... Okay, if the blisters are small, 
medium size, I mean, I wouldn't touch them. But if they're very large and it's likely you're going to pop them simply by laying on your back, if your bird happens to be on your back, uh, or other pressure just simply from wearing clothes, well, you might want to uh, drain them in a controlled fashion. If you do that, uh, use a reddened a, a needle that's red hot or that you've sterilized in some other way, uh, pinch it. Uh, put, you can let that needle cool down, by the way. Right, you let the needle cool down. That's right. And, and you can use a lighter or a, a fire um, to sterilize it, but then let it cool down before you pop the blister. That's right. And right <laughs> on the very edge of the blister, near the skin, then that's where you're going to put your needle and drain the blister. Keep the skin above it. It'll provide a shield. So, I mean, it's a very reasonable thing to do. And... The truth of the matter is, is you never really want to remove that skin. You, you, if it falls off on its own, that's fine. But don't pull on it because you will wind up taking much more skin than you expected. It's not like peeling from a first-degree burn. Absolutely. You, you're actually tearing off a, a thicker layer of skin than you would expect. Now, we're going to talk next week about third-degree burns, and we're going to talk about natural remedies for burns other than just the usual thing, and we'll see what we can come up with. This is Joe Alton, MD. Thanks for listening. Are you worried about how dangerous the world has become in these days of terrorist attacks, natural disasters, or even a future collapse? You need to be medically prepared to keep your family safe. I'm Joe Alton, MD of store.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find an entire line of uniquely designed medical kits and supplies for when help is not on the way. For everything from individual first aid kits to the ultimate family medical bag, go to store.doomandbloom.net today. You'll be glad you did. In these days of terrorists, active shooters, and worse, every school, workplace, and homestead should have the equipment to save a life. The first aid bleeding control module is meant to provide the items you need to stop hemorrhage. It's compact, lightweight, and has easy-to-read waterproof instructions. If every teacher's desk, worker station, and car or truck had one, have no doubt it would save lives. Available at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net.